Welcome to this Jeremy Bamber and White House Farm Season 2 podcast. My name is Yvonne Hartley from the Jeremy Bamber Innocence Campaign and I am joined today by Mr Stuart Bauer. Stuart is a former police officer having served in both Sussex and West Yorkshire Police Forces. However, his career came to an abrupt end in 1985 when he was imprisoned for a crime that he was completely innocent of. So today, Stuart has come to talk to us about his case and his miscarriage of justice, and also how and why the police were corrupt in his circumstances. So hello, Stuart, lovely for you to join us. Um, If I can start at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As you know, I'm a former police officer, having been served in both Sussex and West Yorkshire. My career in the West Yorkshire Police was terminated back in 1985, when I was put in prison for three months for a crime I did not commit. It took me nine years to clear my name in uncontested appeal in 1994, so I've seen the criminal justice system at its best, at its worst, and sadly, at its most corrupt. It would take a good two hours to tell the whole story from beginning to end, but in short, It was alleged that while I was on night duty, I arsoned a boat belonging to my family as an insurance fraud. It was Sunday night and the last of a seven night tour of duty. The boat was moored at Sowerby Bridge Boatyard on the Rochdale Canal. Because of storms that week, I was checking the security of my boat on the way into work and on my way home in the morning. On Sunday night, I found that my boat was in order but one of the yard-owned boats was in danger of losing its tarpaulin. At the police station, I phoned the yard key holder to inform him of the danger to one of his boats. Mm. He told me that he would not be able to turn out himself, so I told him that if I had time later the night, I would see what I could do. So I've already declared an intention that I'm going to visit the boatyard in the early hours of the morning, part of the action of a criminal. Exactly. That night, I was double-manned with P.W. Cold. She had only just finished her probation, and I'd been her tutor constable when she first joined the force. At 4am in the morning, I dropped P.W. Coles off the police station for an unofficial tea break. This is something that happened every night. The whole rotor would adjourn for an unofficial tea break, which, nice. although it was an open secret, if something went wrong and people had to cover their backs... It would have been a very serious discipline complaint investigation, potentially. Yeah. yeah. So I went, when I went to the boatyard, the tarpaulin on the boat that was owned by the boatyard had blown completely off, but by a quirk of fate, had folded itself up uh, neatly under the boat, so there was no further action needed there. I had a walk around my own boat, Three of the fly nut lashings on the rear canopy were undone, so I did them back up and no thought no more about it. Yeah. The rain was blowing horizontally, so I took, got back into the police car as soon as possible. And before I went back to the police station, I took a circular drive around the town, uh, which uh, took me less than 20 minutes. And my route took me back past the, ple- the boatyard and there was nothing wrong. Yeah. Now, on my arrival back in the control room, I discovered that Sergeant Stead, who normally patrols Todmorden, was paying a visit. The reason for that is we didn't have a sergeant or an inspector on at Sowerby Bridge that night, and I was actually the senior officer. Right. So we were talking for a few moments when a call came in that a car was on fire in the scrapyard, which was next to the boatyard. Oh. So I um, got back into the uh, police car with P.W. Coles, And on the way to the yard, the call was changed to boat on fire in the boatyard. And at that point, I panicked. And the reason I panicked is because earlier the previous Sunday afternoon, when I was off duty, I'd been doing some renovation work on the boat using a blowtorch. Right. And the blowtorch had a slight fault on it. Once it was switched off, there was a very small residue of flame left behind bit like a pilot flame. I see, yeah. I had to physically blow it out, and I couldn't remember doing it. And sadly, on arrival at the yard, the fire service were already there, and it was indeed my boat that was on fire. 
is it is it likely then that that was from the faulty device the faulty blowtorch oh we'll come to that in one second okay It'll, um, all will be revealed <laughs> um the first thing i did when i saw it was my boat was scream a, a warning that there was calagas on board two calagas senators mm. and a fireman by the name of Stephen Scott and P.W. Coles were eventually to make statements that confirming that I did shout that warning. Yeah. We were joined by Sergeant Stead, and once the fire was put out, I had a long conversation with the senior fire officer, Station Officer Tony Whitwell, about the cause of the fire. Both Sergeant Stead and P.W. Coles were listening to the conversation uh, while I explained to Tony Whitwell that although I really thought that my blowtorch was the cause of the fire, I realised it could not have been. Right. It was only a little tiny flame, like a pilot flame, and it certainly wouldn't have caused anything to ignite. No. P.W. Coles eventually made a statement confirming that I had done all in my power to convince Tony Whitwell that my blowtorch could not have caused the fire, mm. but he was the one that insisted it did. Right. Now, that statement made by P.W. Coles was illegally withheld from my defence at my trial. I did not find this until several years later. Well, that's a common thread, isn't it? Yes, you know, this would be all ringing bells with you. Absolutely. Tony Whitwell, the fire officer, committed blatant perjury at my trial, claiming that I did not shout a warning that there was Caligas on my boat my defence failed to challenge him with the two committal statements which confirmed that I did. Mm. After my trial, Tony Whitwell tried to claim that I wasn't the slightest bit upset about my boat being on fire. When challenged that P.W. Coles confirmed that I was very upset with tears in my eyes, Whitwell replied that he would have been more upset. So <laughs> straight away, I've got a senior fire officer committing perjury against me. Yeah, absolutely. So on arrival home that morning, I told my family what had happened, went to bed, there was nothing else I could do. That afternoon, after I had my sleep, it was my rest day, I reported the fire to the insurance company. And the fact that I reported it immediately was made out by the prosecution of my defence, my, my trial, to be highly suspicious. Mm. You know, why could, either way... So uh, what, well, how long are you supposed to leave it? Is there a precedent? I mean, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Well, quite. I mean, any uh, anybody that's dealt with insurance companies knows that you're supposed to um, reform the insurance as soon as possible. Exactly. I had nothing else to do that Monday afternoon, so I went to the insurance office to um, inform them. That's it, as you're supposed to do. So Tuesday, the following morning, I dropped my uh, children off at school and called into the boatyard on the way home to have a look at the damage, and I found that it was swarming with police officers. An inspector by the name of uh, Inspector Naylor told me that Station Officer Whitwell, who had also turned up at the scene of the fire, he was off duty, but somebody from the fire station alerted him to the police who were interested. So he turned up, and according to Inspector Naylor, Whitwell was insisting that the boat had been arsoned. No. So, so Inspector Naylor said he was going to take me back to the police station because obviously I needed to be interviewed. Mm. And once we were away from the yard, Inspector Naylor told me that Tony Whitwell was making a direct accusation that I had arsoned the boat. So straight mm -hmm. away we have a member of the public making a formal complaint against the police officer, which by law must be re recorded and investigated. Yeah. So on arrival at the police station, Naylor left me in the car while he consulted with Chief Inspector Ridley, who was going to be in charge of the investigation. Naylor came back to the car and told me that I was free to go about my business. Ridley, Ridley would be interviewing me at a later date. Okay. At, despite being told to go about my business, at 6.30 approximately that evening, I received a phone call asking me report to, to report to Halifax Police Station. I arrived about 7pm. I was kept waiting for an hour, then interviewed by Chief Inspector Ridley, assisted by uh, Sergeant Tottles. That delay of an hour is quite psychologically, it's designed to get suspects stewed up and het up 
before they start. Yeah, to make it's you anxious. Psychology. Right. The police officer, you would have known that anyway, wouldn't you? Yeah. The interview took about an hour. After that, Ridley and Tottles followed me home where they interviewed my in-laws between 9 and 10 p.m. Now, in my own interview, I explained to Ridley and Tottles the boat had originally been purchased by my father-in-law from the original owner and builder. It was self-built. Right. He paid £3,000, the price having been reduced from £4,250. I explained that the boat had been brought from the Thames to Sowbury Bridge so that my parents-in-law could use it as accommodation while we renovated and converted the basement of my house into a self-contained grandparent flat. Right. That way they could act as childminders to enable my <laughs> wife to renew her nursing career, which effectively doubled our income. Once Sounds the flat like had been completed. Yeah. Once the flat had been completed, my father-in-law had no further use for the boat and he intended to put it on the market. My wife and myself suggested that we purchase the boat for the £3,000 that my father-in-law had paid. Our intention was to renovate it and then ship it back to the Thames and trade it in for a Thames cruiser. This was all explained to Ridley and Tottles. I also explained that at that stage, I actually had not actually paid for the boat, so that obviously any insurance money would go be passed over to my father-in-law. Yeah. And that's what happened. I received the cheque, endorsed it on the back, and paid it to my father-in-law. Yeah. And we, we obtained £3,000 from the insurance company. I also explained to Ridley and Tottles that no renovation work could be started on the boat until we'd finished renovating the house. So the boat was lifted from the water and put onto dry mooring. I also explained on board I had a large carton of turps and a smaller carton of white spirit ready for yeah. repainting. Now, obviously, you know, uh, a chief inspector investigating a crime like this wanted to discuss the intruder's possible point of entry. And I told him that I suspected that it was the top deck hatch, which was insecure and one of the jobs that needed doing. Right. A few days later, when on patrol, I found the top deck hatch amongst the wreckage. It was totally unburnt or undamaged, which proved that it must have been off and open at the time of the fire. I contacted Ridley and he gave me a clear instruction to leave it in place. He would deal with it. Right. The next time I looked at the wreckage, the deck hatch had been removed. The conclusion of our initial investigation was that I disturbed an intruder, possibly someone sleeping rough, who had either accidentally or deliberately arsoned the boat. My father-in-law, when he was interviewed by Ridley and Tottles, confirmed everything that I said. Yeah. My father-in-law was asked, did he have petrol on board the boat because the boat was diesel? And my father-in-law told Ridley that he used petrol-soaked rags to clean the engine and they were stored in a carrier bag on the floor of the full-size locker, which was to the left of the cabin door. That's what uh, nautical we refer to as the port side. Yeah. At my trial, Ridley told my father-in-law that these uh, petrol-soaked rags were irrelevant because it was a massive amount of petrol that had been used, used to arson the boat, far more than what you'd get from a petrol-soaked rag. I see. So it's quite obvious that somebody had put petrol onto the now, boat. Sometime after my, my trial, Ridley's pocketbook conveniently went missing. As they do. Well, I mean, pocketbooks <laughs> are signed for when they're issued, signed for when they're handed back in, kept for seven years, but somehow his pocketbook went missing. Right. And one of the court judges actually stated he flatly refused to believe that that was an accident. So a couple of days after the first interview with Ridley and Tottles, my rotor inspector, a man by the name of Inspector Shackleton, was authorised by the chief superintendent to tell me that unofficially I had been cleared. Nobody seriously expected me of arson. My rotor inspector was later prevented from giving evidence at my trial, and my defence barrister allowed them to get away with it. I'm fighting to clear my name. Mm -hmm. Several legal experts have looked at the transcript of the trial, which is still in my possession, and all con concluded the defence was so incompetently handled, it can only amount to deliberate sabotage. So mm -hmm. your question is, why? And that is what I'll be coming to.
a couple of weeks later, while I was um, on two ten shift, Sergeant Tottles visited my father-in-law and told him that he wanted the file written off with me cleared. And it would be much easier to do that if I did not actually own the boat. Would my father-in-law be willing to sign a statement of ownership? Mm. My father-in-law was brought up to trust police officers, so he signed it. Yeah. I was horrified, but out of my depth. And at my trial, my defence failed to ask my father-in-law why he signed a false statement of ownership. Right. So, so even though, can I just clarify this to the listeners, Stuart? So even though you'd made an agreement with your father-in-law to purchase the boat from him, the paperwork hadn't actually gone through at that stage, or it had, and we were just waiting the payment. The paperwork had gone through. Under contract law, payment doesn't have I to see. take place before ownership changes. Uh, yeah. and the boat was registered in my name, insured in my name, and the insurance paid to me. That makes me the owner. Yeah. But my father-in-law thought he was doing the right thing. I see. As I say, my defence failed to bring out of him in the trial why he signed the false statement of ownership, which means that of the two charges I was convicted of, criminal damage and criminal deception, I've actually been convicted of criminal damage to what was my own property, to burn and destroy if for some perverse and strange reason and wanted to do so. You cannot be convicted of criminal damage to your own property. No. It shows the incompetence of my defence. Do you think they were going to hanker for the insurance fraud angle? Oh, yeah, there is still the insurance fraud. Um, but either way, it was evidence to show that, well, if my defence was handled properly, they would have brought this out to show how the evidence against me was being fabricated. Absolutely. Meanwhile, Tony Whitwell was not happy and he was repeatedly making slanderous accusations to my colleagues to the point that I was being forced into a position where I might have to involve solicitors. I then found myself subject to another investigation conducted by Superintendent Wiseman, assisted by Inspector Atkinson. And it was this second investigation that fitted me up with evidence that ranged from slightly inaccurate to blatant perjury. Starting with the woman who dialed three nines to alert the fire, she lived yeah. above the boatyard. She initially gave a statement to Ridley and Tottles saying that she saw the fire as it started. She described a dull glow which burst into flames. If she saw the fire when it started, that makes it impossible for me to have been guilty because I was at the police station when the call came in. Yeah. Six months later, she gave a statement to Wiseman and Atkinson saying that when she saw it, it was well and truly alight with flames coming out of the roof. No. My defence allowed the prosecution merely to read out the second statement, but not reveal the first statement. Now, if that's not deliberate sabotage, I defy somebody to tell me what is. Exactly. It's amazing how stories get exaggerated, isn't it, over the course of time? Yeah, exactly. The opening plank of the prosecution claimed that we had bought a boat for a mere £2,000, yet insured it for £4,000. The boat's previous owner, who I'll not name at this stage, was also a magistrate. Now, magistrates know better than anybody the importance of statements being true and accurate. And that's right. So, magistrate came to give evidence at my trial. He openly admitted that he had told Inspector Atkinson that £3,000 had been paid for the boat, that yeah. um, a one single payment of £2,000, and then a, third, a, a second payment of post-dated checks for the final 1000 spread over the next couple of years. And he also confirmed that the boat had been originally on the market at 4250 so yeah. the boat was asked, insured for less than the asking price, original asking price. That's for some perverse and strange reason, my defence barrister didn't cross-examine the boat's original owner as to why on earth a magistrate would be making a statement a thousand pounds wrong. Mm. The second plank of the prosecution was that I had turned down an offer of two thousand pounds the day before the arson, saying I wanted more. The person that made that offer was a friend of mine who knew that I was going to renovate the boat 
Yeah. And he thought he'd like to buy it himself. At my trial, he admitted that it was only a tentative offer a week before the trial, and he would have come up to the asking price. Yeah. Again, he wasn't questioned as to how he could possibly make a statement a thousand pound wrong. So the third plank of the prosecution's case was that um, I was in financial difficulties and no evidence was produced by the prosecution to support this accusation. A much, much later date, two officers from Greater Manchester Police were able to interview two of my previous bank managers. Both made statements saying there was absolutely no evidence to support the theory I was in financial difficulties. That's what they want people to believe, isn't it? To make things up to fit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, the most surprising thing was that when the committal papers were served, I find that Chief Inspector Ridley had signed a statement saying the deck hatch was never discussed with him. It was so significant that he'd have remembered if it had. Really? And a couple of days before my trial, a second statement was received from Ridley admitting that I must have discussed the deck hatch with him because he had discussed it with the force forensic officer, but he could not remember anything about my discussion with him, his discussion with the forensic officer, on an issue that he openly admitted was so significant. Mm. And this is a man with nearly 30 years service. Well, this is a police officer who should have made notes in his pocketbook, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. They'll come to that in a second. And my defence failed to ask the most obvious of questions. How could not only Ridley forget this very significant conversation on the deck hatch, but so did Sergeant Tottles, who was with him. So we've got two experienced police officers. Yeah. And I now know, following uh, an investigation years later, the forensic officer had told Ridley that the deck catch floored the entire case against me. It would, though, wouldn't it? Completely exonerate, yeah. Talk about sifting out evidence relevant to the defence. Yeah, absolutely. Now... It plot gets very complicated because I, once I was under investigation, I went to the fir in Halifax firm of Wilkinson, Woodward and Ludlam, which no longer exists. And initially, I was under the charge of a man by the name of Mr Beavers. When I was suspended, Mr Beavers put me under the care of a man called John Sykes. John Sykes was not a solicitor. He no. was a legal executive. He was also a former police of prosecution inspector of Halifax. He <laughs> retired so recently, I did not even know that he had retired until I saw him in the solicitor's office. Right. Now, obviously, I was a bit dubious, but I was informed by Mr Beavers that it was felt that as an ex-police officer, he would be the best man to prepare the case. However, at court, it would be either David Ludlam or one of the senior partners representing me as assistant to the barrister. They say that hindsight is a very exact science. To this day, I cannot believe I could have been so stupid as not to immediately change solicitors. Yeah. My barrister was a man by the name of Michael Harrison. He went on to be a QC. And at the court, it was not David Ludlam that turned up, but John Sykes who represented him as the junior. Right. So, again, hindsight, I should have immediately pointed out that John Sykes was an imposter and demanded an, ins an explanation what he was yeah. doing there. Yeah. Yeah, but you don't because, I mean, there's enough going on, isn't there? Well... Stressful situation to begin with. I was on the edge of a breakdown completely. I had, mm -hmm. I had actually had a breakdown and needed professional counselling because of exactly. what this was doing to me. And also at the trial, this when Inspector Shackleston's statement was it was announced that he was not it was not going to be used. So, you know, a statement telling from my inspector saying that unofficially I'd been cleared. I asked John Sykes what the hell was going on. And at that point he lied, cheated, and deceived me that the judge was going to listen to the prosecution case, then throw it out. A number mm -hmm. of legal experts have examined the transcript and said, weren't any submissions made to the judge? The three points of the prosecution case against me were all proved to be untrue. Didn't they actually suggest to the judge that the case was unsustainable? 
Disgusting, isn't it? Anyhow, once had been found guilty, Michael Harrison flatly refused to lodge an appeal. Right. Now, while I was in prison, my family wrote to Mr. Roy Galley MP, who was then my uh, MP. And I have a letter dated 24th of May, 1985, written by David Ludland to Roy Galley, saying there was no cause for, for concern. To quote the letter, still in my possession, the trial of Stuart Nicholas Bauer, who at the time was a police officer, was conducted in a proper manner, and therefore there are no grounds for appeal. <laughs> well, with friends like that, I certainly didn't need any enemies. Exactly. Why do you think it was, Stuart, that these police officers did this to you? Why do you think it was? With that, I'm about to enlighten you. Okay. As my brother said to me, my late brother said to me at the time, if this was written down as a work of fiction, it'd be rejected on the grounds it's too far-fetched for words. Oh. On my release from prison, I lodged a complaint of perjury and perverting the course of justice against the seven police officers and the senior fire officer who had uh, committed perjury at my trial. Yeah. Also on my release from prison, I visited the boatyard and discovered that the evidence of perjury against Inspector Atkinson was so absolute there could be no defence. He had claimed at my trial expert knowledge of my boat because his own boat had been moored at Sowerby Bridge Boatyard and had been for the previous two years. Right. Well, that was news to me. I didn't know he had a boat at the boatyard. No. He went on to claim that the top deck hatch, I stated, must have been the intruder's point of entry, didn't exist. Both he and my, both me and my father-in-law were blatant liars. <laughs> it turned out that Atkinson did not, nor never had had a boat moored at Sabridge Boatyard. His boat was purchased from the yard, then promptly moved to his house at York, where it had its own riverside moorings. Right. That transaction took place before my boat arrived at the boatyard. Right. At my trial, he claimed under oath that prior to the hearing, he had not been asked to consider a second deck catch on the top deck. And when he said, no, he hadn't, Judge Gosney, the late Judge Gosney, said, are you saying that before this trial, you've never been asked to consider a deck hatch on the top deck? Indeed, no, sir, was his reply. <laughs> the prosecution barrister repeated the question, and he denied, prior to the trial, being asked to consider a deck hatch, second deck hatch. It's and my defence asked him the same question. So three times under oath, Mm. He had said that he'd never been asked to consider the second deck hatch on the top deck. Well, when you look at the transcript of the trial, it becomes impossible that the late Judge Gosney didn't know that he was lying out of his back teeth because earlier Superintendent Wiseman had been cross-examined and confirmed that in the interview we had discussed the deck hatch in great detail. Yeah. That's what caused him to ask Ridley to make a statement saying it hadn't been discussed with him. So and that's why they went and even looked at this deck hatch, though, didn't they, to, to see if there was any damage on it or anything. And they told you to leave it there. Exactly. So they were fully aware of it. Oh, yeah. So anyhow, about a year later, I've still got the copies of the letter. I received letters from both the Director of Public Prosecutions and the Police Complaint Authority, as it's then known, both stated that a thorough investigation had been carried out and there was no evidence of any wrongdoing. The letter from the police complaint authority was detailed enough to prove that the investigation was a complete whitewash. Mrs Crawley of the police complaint authority stated that Inspector Atkinson denied committing perjury about the deck hatch and claimed he had not been asked about it in any detail. Which raises the question. How on earth could they make this value judgment without a transcript of the trial to establish what was said at court? Yeah. I lodged a formal complaint against White, uh, Superintendent Wiseman and Inspector Sutton of West Yorkshire Discipline and Complaints, who had uh, investigated my complaint on behalf of West Yorkshire Police. And in a letter dated the 25th of September 1987, Chief Superintendent Little, who was in charge of discipline and complaints, stated that considerable time, trouble and effort had already gone into the complaint and he was not going to open the case in another, reopen the case in another guise. 
Well, because of my knowledge of the law, I was able to force chief, the chief constable to reopen the case and pass it to two officers, a superintendent and an inspector of Greater Manchester Police. Yeah. Initially, after I was cleared at appeal, I had nothing but praise for those two. Since then, I have seen a lot more paperwork and know that this second investigation was going to be another whitewash. But I had one ace up my sleeve, Superintendent Clark and Inspector Boardman of Greater Manchester Police knew that I was going to be taking a witness to the first interview. Until she got there, that the witness was going to be Alice Marne, the former Labour MP for Halifax. And she made it crystal clear to them that if they didn't do the investigation, she would. And my case was also taken up by the late journalist Paul Foote, who wrote to them saying he was following the case. And I now know from what I've only recent information only recently received, that if it hadn't been for those two, I would never have been cleared. But because Alice Mann and Paul took up the case, um, that was when my opposition, for want of a better word, yeah. realised they'd better start looking at a damages limitation exercise. Yeah, thank goodness those two came along then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was at this first interview with Greater Manchester Police that it was officially, or although it is suspected, officially established that the two West Yorkshire Discipline and Complaint Officers, Feaster and Sutton, were themselves so bent and corrupt, and I make no apologies for that description, they claimed to investigate a case of perjury, yet they never even had a transcript of the case to establish what was said at court. When questioned by Greater Manchester Police, these two officers both stated that transcripts are never obtained in any comp- investigation of perjury. So if the GMP had any complaints, and they should raise them with both the Director of Public Prosecution and the Police Complaint Authority, who supervised the investigation. <laughs> now, this is the same Discipline and Complaint invest- Department that investigated John Stalker's Northern Ireland inquiry mm-hmm. and the investigation into the corruption in the West Midlands Serious Crime Squad. Yes, there's a lot of faith in them, isn't there? Quite. And believe it or not, I've still got a letter that Mr Cecil Clothier wrote to the National Council of Civil Liberties, as it's then known, confirming there's nothing unusual in investigations being conducted to in case of perjury without the investigating officers obtaining a transcript. So it raises the question just how many more discipline and complaint investigations have been swept under the carpet? Exactly. Well, my statement of complaint to Greater Manchester Police outlined 141 discrepancies in the case against me and the previous investigation by West Yorkshire Discipline and Complaints. In 1990, the DPP petitioned the Home Secretary to pass my case to the Court of Appeal. And this is now done by the Criminal Case Review Commission. Yeah. It still took a further four years for my appeal to go ahead. This was due to numerous legal arguments because the DPP was refusing to hand over documents and statements until ordered to do so by the courts. Now, as a point of amusement, my case actually made the law reports. So the case of Regina versus Bauer is now an official stated case and case which can be referred to in other legal arguments. As a police officer, I always wanted a famous stated case name after me. I didn't <laughs> anticipate being the defendant. No, exactly. So my appeal was granted on three grounds. On the orders of the prosecution barrister, a man by the name of Mr. Charlesworth, West Yorkshire Police withheld vital forensic evidence from from the defence in relation to the deck hatch, which proved that I'd been telling all truth all along. Mm. The fact is that we now know the forensic officer told both uh, Chief Inspector Ridley and Inspector Atkinson that the deck hatch floored the entire case against me. Definitely. The forensic officer could not be corrupted and was determined to stick to the truth. So there are some honest police officers out there. Well, yes. <laughs> so <clears throat> the appeal court judge also said the, the evidence of perjury against Detective Act, Inspector Atkinson 
was so absolute there could be no defence. You only need one bad apple, don't you, Stuart, who's a senior officer, who then instructs his lower-ranking officers to do as they're told, and that's it, isn't it? Yeah, totally agree with you. As mm. I said, we must stress the vast majority of peace officers are, are, are honest, decent people. Unfortunately, the system is such that it sucks you into corruption without you realising what's happening. Yeah. It starts yeah. in your probation when you can be kicked out for any reason you're not deemed not to be suitable to make a good and efficient officer. Mm. And it starts when you put your first reports in and the clerical sergeant says, good file this, now let's polish it up a bit. Not exactly perjury or lies, but just say, emphasising what's good for the prosecution, deleting what's good for the defence. Yeah. And that's how it starts, slowly. Mm. It's like a ball rolling downhill. It gets faster and faster. That's right. Now, so, in all, Greater Manchester Police also discovered why Tony Whitwell was so against me and why he was willing to commit blatant perjury. <clears throat> Just now then. That sounds very interesting, this. Well, so this is at the heart of the whole case, isn't it? It turned out that the most likely suspect for the arson to the boat was a young man I'd arrested for burglary a couple of months earlier. He'd stated his intention to hit back at me for the arrest, mm. and he'd also stated an intention to arson his own father's boat. He was at loggerheads with his father. He didn't know for certain which his father's boat was, but it was moored very close and similar in appearance to mine. Nice. And I hasten to add, I've got all this in writing from official documents from the Home Office and the Appeal Court. Yeah. So I can back up what, everything I'm saying with written Excellent. documents. Well, when I arrested that young, for, young man for burglary, his accompanist got away and nice. was later picked up by the CID. The accompanist being Tony Whitwell's then 16-year-old son. Wow. Who would have believed it? Goodness. As my late brother said, if this was written down as a work of fiction, it'd be rejected as too far-fetched for words. Well, Tony Whitwell did make a full confession to Greater Manchester Police, and I had seen the statement he made. Yeah. After I'd given evidence, he was interviewed by his colleague, Senior Station Officer Lane, who asked him about the trial. Tony Whitwell told Station Officer Lane that I was being fitted up. He was willing to go along with it until he saw my family in the court and realised the implications. Mm. Station Officer Lane told him to keep very quiet because he'd been talking to the police officers investigating me. They said they knew I was innocent, but they wanted me out of the job. The exact words of Station Officer Lane were, they just want rid of him. <laughs> At which point, Tony Whitwell said, I'm having nothing to do with this, and backed out of the office. Nice. And it was not until 22nd of June 2015, I discovered what I had done to deserve such unbelievable malice. On that day, my 94-year-old mother made a very surprising deathbed confession. She knew she was at the end of her life and wanted to put certain matters right before she died. <laughs> it turns out, the catalyst that had this corruption together was the Masonic Brotherhood. And I am not, no. and I repeat, not saying that the Masonic Brotherhood is a sinister organisation on a par with the Italian Mafia. Far from it, and I repeat, far from it, the vast majority of members of the Masonic Brotherhood are honest, decent people. Mm. Unfortunately, due to the secrecy oath of loyalty to fellow members and the secrecy of membership, it's very easy for the Masonic Brotherhood to be used for sinister purposes, and in my case, it was. Yeah. To complicate matters further, I was raised in a family destroyed by domestic violence. It was not my father, the male, but my mother, the female, who was the violent and abusive one. She wasn't de deliberately wicked or evil. It was what my life made her. Mm. She was the second youngest of 11 children born in 1920, and raised by two alcohol acute alcoholic parents in the crushing poverty of a Yorkshire pit village in the 1920s and 30s. 
And you yeah. must remember that a hundred years ago, there was, wasn't the social services or the mental health care that there is today. No, exactly. So she is what life made her. My father died suddenly and unexpectedly in December 1997 after a long illness in hospital. He developed pulmonary embolisms and that was put down as the cause of death. The yeah. autopsy didn't go any further than establishing that he had pulmonary embolisms. During a furious outburst of temper at the end of, 2000, of the year 2000, I caused to question my, if my father's death was natural causes, but something more sinister. After all of his research and consultation with solicitors, mm. on the 2nd of January 2002, I walked into Worthing Police Station and lodged a formal complaint of murder against my mother. I handed over wow. a long statement based on 50 years of domestic violence. Yeah. I stated that on the night of his death, I believed that my mother had put poison into his coffee. Sussex police could not do anything because my father had been cremated, despite the fact he's stating he wanted to be buried in his will. Right. So my mother had gone against the wishes of his, his will. Yeah. I didn't speak to either my mother or brother for the next 10 years. And it was not until 2011 that peace was made. And the reason peace was made is because I myself, I didn't know it, but I'd come very close to death. I needed an urgent mm. operation. And yeah. I rationalised. She was past 90. If I couldn't actually pretend I had forgiven her, even though I didn't, I'd be a mm. very poor man. And that was my motive for making peace. Yeah, yeah. So, you have to do it for yourself, don't you? Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. Well, on the night when my mother made the confession, first thing my mother confessed to was that I'd been quite right. She had put poison into my father's coffee really? that night. Oh, my goodness. And the reason my father had told my mother earlier in the week that he intended to tell me the truth upon a number of family matters. And unfortunately for my father, my mother was determined that I was not going to be told the truth about these certain family matters. She didn't want oh, me knowing. Oh, that's shocking. Yeah, well, as I say, my mother wasn't deliberately wicked or evil. It's what life made her. It is, but, but to find that out, to confirm mm. your suspicions. So did your brother then make up with you? Did you? Because that caused a rift. Within the family, did then you establish a relationship with your brother again? Ah, yes. My brother yeah. was six years. My brother was six years older than me. He, after I made peace with the mother, he contacted me. And what we both found when we first made contact, we'd both been victims of two badly damaged parents who couldn't live together, but didn't have the term to didn't have the intelligence to separate. And we were used as pawns in their polit political mm -hmm. battle against each other. So, yes, yeah, so I was very, uh, myself and my brother were true brothers at the end. Yeah, that's excellent. I mean, you've gone through such a lot, haven't you, Stuart? I mean, to take the story further, my father was a Mason in the Worthing Lodge of the Masonic Brotherhood and was watching the proceedings at the court. And he told my brother and myself, that Masonic signals were flying all over the courtroom. According to my father, the late Judge Gosney responded to a Masonic distress signal by taking away my right to answer fully and freely all questions put to me during cross-examination. He told me to restrict myself by answering with either yes or no. <laughs> now, as I say, Hindsight's a very exact science. I should have realised what was going on. I've since had it confirmed that the late Judge Gosney was in very senior Mason. Apparently, he had made no secret of it. So instead of stopping the trial, he took away my right to answer freely and fully because he'd realised that if I carried on, the corruption was going to be exposed. Yeah. After my conviction... My father refused to confirm the use of Masonic signals during my trial, which caused a family rift that was never healed. My mother told me that sometime before the trial, my father had tried to get me invited to join the Masons, but he was told by his lodge master to stop trying. Inquiries made with the Halifax Lodge, who told the Worthing Lodge 
that I had proved on more than one occasion that if I had to choose between my oath of office as a constable or my oath of loyalty not to harm fellow Masons, then my oath of office would take precedence. Right. My mother was able to describe three incidents that I'd never discussed with either my parents, yet they knew about them. The first incident goes back to 1979. On the main street of Sabre Bridge was a large motorcycle business called Lee Brothers. It occupied four out of five shops in front of a parking bay that was set into the pavement. When Lee Brothers had finished a repair, they would push, put the motorcycles on the lay-by ready to be collected by the owner. This had been the practice for many years. Unfortunately, one of the local councillors, who I now know was a mason, abused his trust as a councillor to conduct a vendetta against Lee Brothers. Mm. Lee Brothers had purchased a chapel on the opposite side of the road to use as a warehouse. The councillor had wanted it for his own purposes and was upset that Lee Brothers outbid him. I was instructed to go and report Lee Brothers for parking so as to cause an obstruction. Obstruction of vehicles that are parked on a parking lay-by. Yeah. I refused to do it, pointing out Stone's Justice Manual, which states that a vehicle could not be deemed an obstruction if it was parking on a parking lay-by. Right. This caused heated arguments with my chief inspector, superintendent, and even the chief superintendent. I finally submitted a report quoting the page and paragraph of Stone's Justice's Manual. I also stated that if I did report Lee's brothers for obstruction, it would be a not guilty plea and the defence would expose the, con con expose the conduct of the councillor. Yeah. A couple of days later, my rotor sergeant, who always agreed with me, took me to one side and said, well done, you finally made them see sense. Excellent. As I say, not all police officers. There are mm. some honest and decent ones out there. Yeah, yeah. The second incident took place in the autumn of 1981, and I now know that this is what caused the decision to be made that one way or another I was going to be removed from the police service. I had to arrest a single mother of a 14-year-old teenage girl on warrant and have her taken off to prison for non-payment of rates, which are now known as council tax. Yeah. She was not a rogue who was willfully refusing to pay. The Halifax Council had changed the collection system, making it impossible for her to do so. Mm. Prior to 1981, the council rate and rent and rates were paid weekly in a single payment. As a tax-cutting exercise, rent and rates were separated. Rent had to be paid monthly, and the council tenant rates had to be paid the same way as private house owners. Yeah. That is either monthly standing order, twice yearly, or once annually. What this failed to take into account, back in 1981, there were still large numbers of people who were paid weekly in cash. Many of them, particularly the low-paid, lived a hand-to-mouth cash existence. They That's did it. not have bank accounts, so they couldn't pay by standing order. They couldn't budget for a month. Well, quite. Although they could budget on a weekly basis... It was impossible for them to put money by and budget on for a massive rate bill every six, went, six yeah. months. The sole income of the woman I had to arrest was a benefit check cashed at the post office every two weeks. And there was no possibility of her saving up a bill for every six months. No. She needed help. She did not need to be sent to prison. Exactly. I was so horrified, I contacted my local MP, who at that time was the late Donald Thompson, because I lived in his constituency. Yeah. He visited me at home, and when he heard my story, he was absolutely horrified and promised to do something about it. A couple of days later, he phoned me to tell me that he was not able to get the woman out of prison. However, however he was able to get over 20 rape warrants withdrawn. Right. I mean, 20 rape warrants for innocent people. I mean... According to my mother, I had caused a major administration problem for the Halifax Council, <laughs> who had to devise a system for collecting rates from people who were paid weekly in cash and didn't have bank accounts. They only had post office savings accounts. Yeah, that's it. And back in 1980, wasn't, there wasn't the facilities to pay rates at retail outlets like there are today. No. The third incident is very, sin is very sinister because of what I now know 
I'm beginning to wonder if I was being fitted up. I cannot remember the exact details after this length of time. However, I'd made an arrest on my beat. I'd caught a youth in the act of committing criminal damage. I recorded exactly what had been said after caution. I um, submitted a report which was sent back by the clerical sergeant who had put a written suggest suggestion that I should commit blatant perjury. He referred to the reply after caution and said something on the lines of, instead of saying this, this and this, would it not be better if it said that, that and that? <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Not only was my clerical sergeant asking me to commit blatant perjury, but it put into a suggestion into writing on a report that was going to go right through the system and finish up on the mm -hmm. desk of the chief superintendent. After giving it some, th uh, some thought, I wrote back, I totally agree with you. It would have been better had he said that, that, and that, but he didn't. He said this. <laughs> nice. As I state, and I stress, I've never discussed these incidents with my parents, yet many years later, my mother was able to tell me that these three incidents were the reason why my father failed to get me invited to join the Masons. Mm. On Wednesday evening, the week of my trial, my father attended a ha the Halifax Lodge of the Masonic Brotherhood. At the time, my father told me that he could not find out anything about the trial because there were no police officers there. According to my mother, he was lying out of his back teeth. At the Halifax meeting, he had been told there was no intention of me, me being found guilty. I had been put on trial to alleviate the danger of me taking civil court action. Once I'd been found not guilty, Tony Whitwell would have to shut up and stop making slanderous accusations. Mm. Judge Gosney did in use, indeed use his summing up speech to encourage the jury to bring in a not guilty verdict. What everybody had failed to take into account was that two months after the 1984-85 miners' strike, I'd been put on trial before a jury drawn from the heart of the Yorkshire minefield. It took them 15 minutes to come back into the court and pronounce a guilty verdict. Man. They had chosen the youngest member to be the foreman, and the vile, evil little swine was laughing when he said guilty. Really? Once my father arrived home, he contacted the Worthing Lodge to seek assistance with my appeal. He was interviewed by a very senior mason who was above Lodge Master and a senior Sussex police officer who was to act as liaison with West Yorkshire Police. My father was told that the conviction was never intended, but now that it had been convicted, there could be no question of allowing me to appeal. A successful appeal would endanger other police officers who were senior masons. My father was told that he was expected to do all in his power to obstruct my appeal. My father, my, at first, my father refused. The Masons told my father that action had already been taken to protect me while I was in prison. However, they could just as easily have me beaten up and it would not worry them if things went too far. Oh my goodness. Once I was out of prison, my father was told if he did not co still cooperate with the Masons, the Masons would wreck, wreck my brother's late brother's medical career. At that point, moment in history, my brother was a senior lecturer at Sheffield Medical School. Yeah. What the Masons said was to my father was, have you any idea just how many consultant surgeons are members of the Brotherhood? Well, obviously, my father had to cooperate. And I'm told mm -hmm. that my brother knew of the blackmail to my father. And that was the reason why he eventually emigrated to Australia. Once in Australia, my brother's career continued and was he was eventually appointed as the very first dean of the new Notre Dame Medical School. Fantastic. In the last conversation I had with my brother before he died, he told me that in Australia, it's not who you know that matters, but what you know. And I had had other conversations with him where he indicated to me that he knew about the Masonic blackmail, but didn't actually spell it out. Right. In the nine years before my appeal, my father was to pass numerous pieces of information back to the Masons, and some of it caused considerable harm. Mm. I was building a second career as a nursing auxiliary in the private medical care sector. That career was destroyed by another malicious accusation. 
made by a care manager who just happened to be engaged to an Eastbourne CID officer. And by some amazing coincidence, it happened the exact moment in time when Paul Whitehouse was promoted from Deputy Chief Constable of West Yorkshire to Chief Constable. Well, who would have believed that? Well, I will tell you, the hardest part to come to terms with in my ordeal is the kindness I received from the other prisoners at Sudbury Open Prison. Yeah, good. I did get beaten up once, but I was assured that was just formality. Ex-policemen yeah. in prison with them and not giving them at least one good hiding. They landed oh, round and helped me through it. Taught me a very valuable lesson about judging other people. Yeah. Despite the fact that the appeal quashed my conviction on the grounds that police officers perverted the course of justice by withholding vital forensic evidence and committing blatant perjury, not one of the bent line coppers was ever brought to justice. They never are. So, because of what happened to me, on more than one occasion, I've put myself forward to assist others who have been the victims of miscarriage of justice, Fantastic. which brings us to Jeremy Bamber. I started writing to him in two, October 2007. All I had to do was ask two questions to know that he was innocent. The first question was, why did your father phone you to tell you your sister had gone berserk with a gun and was threatening a family? Why didn't he dial three nines? Mm. Concealed from the jury was that Neville Bamber told Essex Police that it was Sheila who had the gun and was threatening the family. Essex Police dispatched a unit to White House Farm as a result of that call, and I have in my possession a copy of that log. It turns out that in 2002, the Metropolitan Police conducted an investigation. The result was that they submitted a statement that at nine minutes past six, someone was still alive in White House Farm and had dialed three nines. Exactly. On being put through to Essex Police by the telecom operator, that person went silent and the call was monitored by PC Millbank. That's right. So if at nine minutes past six, Jeremy Bamber is outside with the local police waiting for the firearms unit to arrive, while well, somebody is alive inside the house making a three nines call, that makes it impossible for Jeremy Bamber to have committed the murders. Absolutely, it does, Stuart. Instead of releasing that statement to Jeremy's defence, the Crown Prosecution Service illegally had it submitted to the subjected to police interest immunity. And if anybody cares to Google the laws on public interest immunity, they will see it is forbidden to be used to withhold information that could prevent a miscarriage of justice. Exactly. So for 20 years, the Crown Prosecution Service have known that it was impossible for Jeremy Bamber to have committed the murders, but withheld it from his defence. And I submit to anybody that goes way beyond criminal corruption. That takes a degree of malice and evil that's beyond description. It really just, Stuart. I mean, from, so, three to three, from when Neville first rang the police, they've known that Jeremy's innocent. Absolutely. They knew he was innocent from the moment. Neville Bamber isn't going to say, my, Sheila my daughter Sheila Cavill's got the gun. If it was Jeremy that had the gun, I, I mean, it's ridiculous. I know. And to actually have a 3 nines call the same time that Jeremy is outside with the police, it's impossible for him to be guilty. Absolutely. So the second question that I asked was, did anybody check that the bullets that killed your family were fired by your father's gun? <laughs> At Jeremy's trial, Essex police produced a whole .22 rifle bullet saying it had been taken from the neck of Sheila Caffel. Yet according to the X-ray photograph, a copy of which I have seen, but don't have it any longer, I'm afraid, the bullet or bullets that hit Sheila Caffel's neck had shattered into three large and several smaller pieces. Yeah, they were in 15 pieces, Stuart, weren't they? So, yeah, it raises the question, why would Essex Police have prosecuted Jeremy Bamber for a crime that he could not possibly have committed. And speaking in my capacity as a former police officer, who was also on the receiving end of a terrifying level of police corruption, unfortunately, other members of the Bambler family were not satisfied, and there was a danger of the Police Complaints Authority becoming involved. 
I have my own view, and this is purely my own views, that I find it physically impossible that the second shot was accidentally fired by the police firearms training unit. I just flatly refuse to accept that. Mm. Other people will strongly disagree with me, but so I stress this is my own personal view, having been a police officer. But I need to just emphasise to the listener that all the evidence is with the CCRC and they'll be the ultimate ones to make the decision. If the police complaint authority had discovered that Essex police had lied to the coroner, certain police officers would well have finished up in with a prison sentence. Absolutely. And if that sounds preposterous, I defy anybody to come up with a more plausible explanation as to why Essex Police and the Crown Prosecution Service would withhold the evidence that somebody was alive inside White House Farm, making a three nines phone call while Jeremy was outside with the local police waiting for the firearms unit to arrive. Absolutely. So my action. Yeah, so my action that I have done recently, I have petitioned the Queen for justice. And I have sent copies of that position, that petition, to all 650 MPs in Parliament. They, Queen and all 650 MPs, have a copy That's of it. the Three Nines log where Neville Bamber said it was a Sheila that had the gun. And they have the, the Metropolitan Report, or a Metropolitan Statement, stating that um, at nine minutes past six, somebody was making a three nines cut phone call while Jeremy was outside with the police. Yeah. And I anticipate your question, have I had any replies? <laughs> I've had a couple of um, postcards acknowledging. Acknowledgements, but no replies. No. It what? doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Well, one MP, Mr Barry Sherman, who is the chair of the cross-party group on miscarriages of justice, has said that... Uh, they can't deal with individual cases and told me to take this up with my own MP, who is Mr. Peter Kyle. I have the highest regard of Mr. Peter Kyle, even though I disagree with him on certain issues. Yeah. So I'm very surprised he hasn't yet replied. That's most unlike him. Mm. And as for the Queen, I'll be very, very surprised if she's actually read the petition. I'm anticipating it will be handled by her staff. Yeah, more than likely. So the fact is, the Queen and 650 MPs have got the solid, concrete, documentary evidence that says Jeremy Bamber is innocent. Absolutely. And I have asked the Queen, the simple solution here, repeated to the MPs, is for somebody to approach the Crown Prosecution Service and find out their intention. Because if the Crown Prosecution Service is willing to accept that it is impossible for Jeremy to be guilty and agree admit they're not going to contest the appeal. Mm. There is no reason why Jeremy Bamber cannot be immediately granted appeal and uh, immediately granted bail pending the outcome of the appeal, or the Queen could even go a stage further and issue a royal pardon to end it now. Absolutely. So that I is mean... all I can tell you, Yvonne. That's all I can say on the subject. I know. Well, it's been absolutely fascinating, Stuart, and I want to thank you so much for your time and the, the work that you do to help Jeremy and others and, and for just highlighting all these faults in the system and, and in the police force and everything. It's been absolutely fascinating. So thank you for talking to me today. Well, well thank you, Yvonne, because Jeremy Bamber is very lucky. He has got you on his side. <laughs> Oh, we're, we're a team. There's a, there's a few of us. So, <laughs> yeah, we're the lucky ones. So, I'm winning this appeal, Stuart. So, thank you very much, Stuart. That's been amazing. And take care of yourself. Bye. Bye. And thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like to do something to help Jeremy Bamber, then sign our online petition to the Home Secretary for the disclosure of case documents that are still withheld by Essex Police. Visit www.change.org and search for Jeremy Bamba. Don't forget to share the link with your friends and family.